Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hi. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the freaking characters and the freaking stories. And I did it again, Claire. I'm so proud. Not looking at the screen. Anyways. I'm going to point it out the next 60 (laughs) times I do it. Um, So today we're talking about Annihilation. Annihilation is the newest film from Alex Garland and is adapted from Jeff Vandermeer's book of the same name. You might recognize Jeff Vandermeer's name if you listen to our podcast because we did an episode about him and his wife putting together a giant sci-fi anthology. One of my favorite things from that year. What was it? The Big Book of Sci-Fi. Yeah, the, yes. Not what is the book. What is the year? <laughs> uh, that was 2016, right? Wow. Time goes by Time fast. flies, man. Anyway, this is one of his books that he actually wrote, didn't collect for a story collection, uh, also called Annihilation. And the book is the first in a trilogy called the Southern Reach Trilogy, or the Southern Reach series. Both the film and the movie follow a group of scientists exploring a mysterious wildlife preserve called Area X. Little is known about what is going on inside Area X, and in both the film and book, multiple expeditions had gone before and were met with disastrous results. In the movie, the weirdness of Area X stems from an apparent meteor that hits the area, maybe causing a biological contamination. In the book, that's not clear, at least in the first book. Right. It's hinted that it might be otherworldly. That it's otherworldly, but it's not, it's, it's not explicitly saying that a meteor crashed here and, and right. carried some stuff. Um, the movie stars Natalie Portman, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Tuva Novotny, and Oscar Isaac. Amongst all the ladies. Yeah. So it definitely passes the Bechdel test. It definitely does pass the Bechdel test. I should also mention that it's a, it's kind of a horror film. It is, it's a trippy, weird, but also very, very beautiful, but also really scary right. movie. Right. This could be, uh, we're talking about portals. This could kind of be a horror portal. Uh, we talked yeah, about that could be kind of be a, a couple podcasts fantasy. ago. Yeah. Claire is going to be talking about aliens, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'll get, I'll explain that. Okay, uh, I'll cool. explain my trajectory and how my mind got there. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk a little, just a teeny bit about Jeff Vandermeer and where his inspiration for the book, and then go into Alex Garland, who's had a, a very storied past adapting. Yeah, he's done books some cool to movies. Stuff. Well, he's also had his own books adapted into movies by other people, so okay. he's been on like every oh, side of that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah. Okay. So, um, like we were talking about, um, this book, what seemed to uh, basically intertwine the book and the movie was something otherworldly. Yeah. Um, Because in interviews, I'm sure you'll go more into this, but Alex Garland said he was making a movie about Mm -hmm. self-destruction. And the book seems to be exploring the ineptitude of institutions, the deterioration of Earth. Um, I've only read the first one and a half of the Southern Reach trilogy. I'm in the middle of the second one right now. Yeah. So I kind of, you know, when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about, I felt very, very not qualified to talk about uh, self-destruction or um, ecological disasters, ecological disasters or the failure of institutions. Um, There are podcasts based on just those things. So I thought I would take what I see as the common thread between the book and the movie and talk about aliens and kind of the history of 
aliens interacting with humans in pop culture. Now, I know you talked about the first alien contact in our Arrival podcast, which I highly recommend. Kyle kind of blew my mind. It was so it was one of the first big alien contacts. Yes. But it was between and two different cultures, cultures on Earth. Um, and also, when I was talking to a lot of people about this movie, they said that it reminded them a lot of Arrival. And that idea of kind of how would we act, how would contact with another world actually be? Yeah. So let's start with that after my very long intro. And not that I'm any more qualified to talk about this. But Claire is actually an alien, so she mm-hmm. is, she's very qualified to talk about I'm an about alien this. in Canada. <laughs> so first of all, let me introduce the term of cosmic pluralism. For those who don't know, it's the philosophical belief that there are many worlds in addition to Earth which could harbor extraterrestrial life. So this idea goes back as far as the ancient Greeks. Leucippus and Democritus, who were both philosophers, who, and I find this very interesting, were at the time also preaching atomism, which is the idea that we're made up of many small particles. Ooh, the Greeks cool. were so advanced. They were ahead of their time. They were so, or they were of their time. Yeah, and that's like, true. Uh, the Middle Ages just pulled everyone back. Yeah. And I'll kind of talk about that as well. But they suggested the cosmos contained infinite worlds. And a couple articles I read pinpointed this as the start of where extraterrestrial life started coming into the culture. That like, oh, there could be other Earths out there, other places like this out Exactly. Um, In the second century, the satirist Lucian wrote a story where his heroes are carried by a whirlwind to the moon. And on the moon, there are men riding three-headed vultures and people riding (laughs) huge fleas that are bigger than elephants. And it turns out that the sun and the moon are engaged in a war. Oh, wow. Um, So I... Maybe that's the first science fiction alien story. You know, looking up the history of sci-fi, I've never seen that mentioned. That totally might be the first (laughs) science fiction story. And this is, again, something that I just want to point out about the ancient Greeks. Aristotle figured out that the world was round and actually not that big in relation to the entire universe. And you think about, like, how in the Middle Ages the world was flat. Yeah. Uh, it was uh, blasphemous to say that there were other worlds. Yeah. Or that it didn't revolve around—that it did revolve around the sun was blasphemous. It's just amazing how— Far back humanity can fall. Yeah, we really took some—we slid backward during the medieval ages. Yeah, well, Europe slid backward. Europe did. China was doing great. The Middle East was doing great. Yeah, India was in a totally different place. Yes. true. Speaking of other cultures, um, the idea of cosmic pluralism, especially in, like, the culture or literature, was— in a lot of different places, there's a 10th century Japanese story about a bamboo cutter who finds a beautiful girl in a bamboo plant, and it turns out she's from the moon and has to go back. Wow, a lot of people living on the moon. Right. Well, actually, I was doing this research, and it kept on coming up, especially in early literature, that the moon is, like, where the aliens live. But that's what people could see. Yeah, you could see a surface on it. You know, with the naked eye, you could maybe even see craters and stuff. So it's like, oh. I mean, and you could see Mars and Jupiter and Venus, but— Not really. You don't exactly—they could be stars. You don't really know what those are. Yeah. Also— some medieval Muslim scholars believed in cosmic pluralism. Bakar al-Din al-Razi argued that instead of Earth being the center of the universe, that there were thousands and thousands of worlds that were bigger than the Earth and were similar to Earth. And uh, this is another kind of tangent. I love how these scientists use theology and philosophy as proof. So um, he actually cited the Quran 
as proof. And the uh, where the Quran says, all praise belongs to God, Lord of the worlds. And he pointed out that worlds, worlds meant that there were infinite worlds. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, that's that's really, really interesting, actually. Because the, the Islamic world at that time was in a golden age, too, mm-hmm. of math and science. And of telescopes. They were one of the first people making telescopes. Yeah, and they then, had some of the best telescopes during like the 8th, 9th century. And then the Muslims, uh, not the Muslims, the Mongols came in. Yeah, a lot of there's, I've, I've read different things saying part of it was uh, uh, religion really stamped down hard back mm. against science. Another part, you know, also the Mongols came in. It was, just it was wiped a, out a large part of their yeah. advances in culture. Yeah. Well, but this, of course, uh, comes into literature um, in the uh, story The Adventures of Bulukia, which is a tale from the 1001 Nights, tells of Bulukia's journey across the cosmos to different worlds in his search for the herb of immortality. Mm. Um, and there's also other stories in 1001 Nights that could be space travel. This isn't necessarily contact with aliens, but you, it is. You know what that is, though, Claire? That story of Bulukia going across, traveling across what? to another world to find the herb of immortality? That's Prometheus. That's Ridley Scott's bad (laughs) alien prequels. (laughs) I'm sure it's told better, too. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Kyle loves Ridley Scott. His favorite director. You heard it here. So, like I was saying earlier, uh, Christianity came into power, and texts that talked about multiple worlds were banned. Uh, It went against the, the Christian teachings that God created the earth specially. So it couldn't be real, and it was blasphemous to say anything otherwise. Yeah, that there could be other life other places. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to think that. But unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for everyone and the church, in the 17th century, the telescope was made stronger— and um, the idea of cosmic pluralism started to rise again, though you could be severely punished, especially in the beginning, for mentioning it. Gordana Bruno who said that God might have created the universe where infinite planets existed, where it's burned to the stake in 1600. Uh, Galileo uh, famously spent the later part of his life under house arrest and had to recant that the, uh, the Earth circled around the sun. Yeah, Coperni- when Copernicus made that observation, he waited until he died <laughs> for, and then had made sure his notes were released after he died before saying so that he couldn't face the repercussions of having said that. But as far as literature goes, Galileo said that the moon looked like Earth through the telescope or its terrain was very similar. So this uh, this whole idea that if the moon was similar to Earth, couldn't it also sustain life, which isn't a far-fetched idea. And it became very popular in literature and, you know, in the cultural Zeitgeist, I guessed. Yeah. Of guess, guest, guess. Um, <laughs> most famously in 1609, Johannes Kepler, a German mathematician, astronomer, and I think overall a genius. Yeah, he was. He was actually helped map Europe back in that time using astronomy to correctly calculate longitude and like help redraw maps in Europe. Right. It's pretty interesting. Uh, he wrote the Somnium, a dream, but it wasn't published till after his death in 1638. Probably because he feared retaliation, though I read he did always mean to publish it. And he feared it for the right reason because then his son published it after his death. And I'm pretty sure his wife was burned at the stake. Really? For heresy. But that aside. It seems like such a small thing to burn someone at the stake for, being like, hey, guys, I think, uh, I think, the, you know, I think the I don't earth agree revolves with around the you. sun. Or, yeah. I don't agree with you. And, you know, in some places you could get still burned at the stake today. Yeah, that's true. Or... 
severely punished. Yeah. Maybe your head chopped off. Yeah. You know, maybe ISIS areas yeah. might not take well Ooh, to Oh, they might actually burn you at the stake. Yeah. So in the Somnium, the author has this dream. And, and the author isn't necessarily uh, Kepler. And in this dream, an Icelandic boy and his witch mother learn of an island called Lavinia, or the moon, from a demon. And the demon describes what the heavens look like from the moon. And this is more of like a, like a scientific like tryst where he is basically trying to describe Earth and what he thinks Earth would look like from the moon, but disguised as a dream in a story okay. by an unknown author. Yeah. But anyway, that... That was a more, like, scientific story. There were other people who wrote about the moon. Francis Goodwin wrote The Man in the Moon, where a man rides geese to the moon and meets Protestant Christians named the Lunars. <laughs> uh, apparently, John Wilkins and Cyrano de Bergerac both wrote, wrote literature about lunar civilizations. Now I'm going to switch tracks and bring us forward in history a little bit and we're going to go to charles darwin's theories of evolution and natural selection gaining wide acceptance but claire why would you go to charles darwin oh i thought you would ask that (laughs) question kyle we didn't plan it or anything so um in the 19th century writers began to really start wondering what really might flourish beyond earth If natural selection was a thing, and people believed, still believe for the most part, that it is, how would alien life forms adapt to their alien planets? Because before now, and all the other stories that I've mentioned, beings from other worlds looked like humans. Yeah, it was like, it was almost fantasy. Yeah, they ride uh, geese. Yeah, they ride your giant ticks or termites or whatever it was. Uh, Fleas. Fleas. I believe it was a flea. (laughs) So this dramatically changed science fiction, and it starts to resemble the aliens that we know today. Yeah, yeah, tentacle monsters and Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, Most famously, H.G. Wells, who was a student of Thomas Henry Huxley, and Thomas Henry Huxley, a tangent, was known as Darwin's bulldog for his advocacy of Darwin's theory of evolution. So H.G. Wells actually came from kind of from the school of Darwin. Yes. Exactly. Cool. Anyway, H.G. Wells, let me get back on track, <laughs> is given credit for making the idea of aliens that we know today mainstream. Famously, War of the Worlds, where Martians invade southern England. Um, he also wrote The First Men in the Moon, where uh, moon-faring humans get captured by giant ants. <laughs> I mean, that's close to what we have today when we think of aliens. Like Starship Troopers, they're fighting giant bugs. Right, but his aliens didn't look like humans. Or they weren't humans, more importantly. You you weren't going and meeting lunars, you know, Protestant moon Martians. Yeah, Germans on the moon who were Protestants. (laughs) Exactly. Though, back then it would make sense because God created the universe. So, of course, course these beings from another planet knew about God and Jesus. Exactly, exactly. Also, funny fact, our typical alien, you know, the big green head with the big black eyes and large forehead— probably comes from H.G. Uh, Wells's article called The Man of the Year Million, where he talks about how the human race could end up looking like gray-skinned beans with black eyes and large heads. Really? That's what I read. I mean, according I mean, to the co- internet. Okay. That's interesting, though. <laughs> um, and I'll link to—I can't remember who wrote that article, but I will link to it. And uh, the green color, though, comes from the 1940s story called Maya's Little Green Men, which appeared in Weird Tales in 1946. Okay. So it's a combination of all of that. But I think that's really fascinating that this yeah. idea of an alien goes all the way back to H.G. Wells. 
I'm going to kind of speed up from here on out because, of course, aliens become very widespread and there's so many different stories that talk about them. So I'm going to just try and really hit the big ones. Edgar Rice Burroughs writes about John Carter uh, from Virginia. This is in... uh, 1912. Goes to Mars. He makes. He goes to Mars. He finds himself in the midst of warring aliens, and this first appeared in pulp magazines. Yeah. And uh, it became a movie about a hundred years later that did not do very well. But it's, I will say, not a terrible movie. I haven't seen it. It's not as and bad I've as I've heard. A lot of people saying it's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's okay. <laughs> Which doesn't necessarily make me want to watch it. <laughs> But uh, Ray ba- Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke both referenced John Carter as an influence on their work. Um, most famously, I think probably the most famous or affecting alien contact uh, story was when Orson Welles adapted uh, War of the Worlds for a radio play. And that triggered mass panic. People running from their homes in New Jersey. They didn't know it was a play. They thought it was really happening. Right. And it was investigated whether he was trying to incite mass fear. Incite panic and riots. Yes. And he was found not guilty. (laughs) Um, And in that play, aliens are bear-sized tentacle monsters that annihilate humans with heat ray guns and toxic gases. I actually I would love to listen to it. Which, I have never listened to it. Yeah, and from the book's perspective, which was written in like the 1890s, pretty. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't like telling the future per se, but World War One was full of toxic gases, and if we could have heat rays, then well, H.G. Wells was talking about colonialism. Yeah, I yeah. mean that's exactly what he was touching on. Also, with H.G. Wells, you start seeing him using aliens as a metaphor yeah. for how we react to new life, or you know to how new cultures, new you people. know human how humans interact with other species, yeah. our psychology, which is what aliens tend to be a, a metaphor for in culture in general, and also they tend to reflect our worries of the time. Like in the 50s, alien stories were affected by the idea of the Cold War and an imminent nuclear holocaust. Some famous examples, and I'm not going to describe all of them. The man from Planet X, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still, It Came from Outer Space. Aliens also started appearing in movies. There's The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Earth versus Flying Saucers, and War of the Worlds. And then again, the culture starts shifting. In the 60s and 70s, you get a more laissez-faire idea of aliens. You get 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Man Who Fell to Earth. You also get Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You also get Star Trek with hot alien girls <laughs> Yeah, and, and you, miniskirts. And you get Star Wars, but I'm more thinking of like yeah, yeah. aliens interacting with Earth. But yes, Star Trek does count. And then uh, do you know who really changed the alien genre around in the 80s? James Cameron. No, I don't know no. who. Steven Spielberg. Steven, oh, with E.T. E. and Close Encounters. Yeah, all yeah. of a sudden aliens weren't this scary thing. Yeah, they, they weren't were, coming to kill you. Exactly. They, they could be your friend. They maybe. could be your friend or they could just be curious passerbyers. Passersby. Passers yes, <laughs> that's what they say. That's what the humans say. <laughs> oh, wow. Claire is totally an alien, guys. She's, I mean, she's from California, so there's that. <laughs> and there's also conspiracy theories that the government actually made close encounters to make the populace not afraid of Afraid humans, of, a- <laughs> of aliens, aliens anymore or space. But Spielberg did influence the genre and all of a sudden you have all these movies coming out where aliens aren't necessarily out to kill you. You have uh, Contact as an example. Yeah. Where the aliens are just 
curious. Yeah. Um, and then you have Independence Day. Where the aliens, aliens are not curious. They just are here they to will, blow things up. They want to take all of Earth's resources. <laughs> I, I was reading this piece that was saying that, and then we backtracked. <laughs> <laughs> it is Carl Sagan. I don't. I can't remember if he was alive then. He probably was. He probably did not enjoy Independence Day. But lately, we've been, in my opinion also, we've been getting a lot more thoughtful science fiction. You have District 9. Yeah. Where it actually shows what happens if aliens came and they weren't that powerful yeah. and how humans would react to them. Also, another movie that uses aliens as a metaphor for, you know, other. I mean, in the, in that case, it's it's refugees mm-hmm. and, and poor people. And then we have movies like Arrival. Yeah. Um, And, of course, now we get to Annihilation. And, you know, there's always different. I think... In my mind, movies are really catching up with literature, alien movies especially, technologically. And also, they've become more accepted, so you can do more thoughtful pieces. Yeah, you can do smarter sci-fi movies, which include aliens. Right, now, and not that there really weren't cool. unintelligent sci-fi movies before, but I feel like the, especially the big hits tended to be shoot 'em up. Yeah, shoot 'em up disaster type movies. Right, or even E.T., which isn't necessary. It's, it's a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. I think nowadays, especially in film, we're catching up to where literature is and that we can really explore what the first alien contact could actually be like and we're able to go more in depth with it. Which I really like. I think that's super cool and, I think and really it's interesting. Really interesting. I mean, who doesn't love, you know, alien attacks, shooting with machine guns sort of thing, but We've had a lot of that. People in New Jersey in like 1938 were not <laughs> excited about that idea, Kyle. That's <laughs> true. But why don't you talk about Jeff Vandermeer? I will. All right, let me get started a little bit about the production. And I'm going to just go into a little bit about Jeff and then more into Alex Garland, the director. So Jeff Vandermeer wrote the book, and I just want to start off a little bit about the original book. As we've mentioned before, it's the first book in the Southern Reach trilogy, and it was released in 2014. So it's pretty recent. Um, The book follows the 12th expedition into the mysterious Area X. Previous expeditions had been met with violence, cancer, and insanity. Um, And the book is— And some are maybe okay. Some are maybe okay, but— Went okay. Yeah, as you read further into the book, you you question— You also question if there have been only 12 expeditions. Mm -hmm. It becomes like, oh, maybe there was a lot more. Um, But the book is from the point of view of the biologist. None of the characters have names. Um, The biologist is accompanied by the psychologist, the surveyor, and the anthropologist. And they're all investigating the mysterious mysterious wildlife preserve area called Area X. And it is a little bit one of those unreliable narrator stories. You're not sure what you can always – that you can always trust what you see or read. Um, I don't want to go too much further into the story of the book because it is truly a trip – um, I'll leave the description with a quote from NPR's Jason Sheehan uh, and his book review of it from February 2014. He says, quote, I hated it from the start. <laughs> Didn't come up for air again for three hours and finished the entire thing in less than a day. Knowing it finally for the strange, clever, off-putting, maddening, claustrophobic, occasionally beautiful, occasionally disturbing, and altogether fantastic book that it is. I also want to mention, me, Kyle, not James Sheehan, uh, that a lot of the inspiration for the book came from a 14-mile hike in St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge in northern Florida that Jeff Vandermeer would do all the time because he lives there. And the lighthouse from the movie and the book is based on St. Mark's Lighthouse. 
Now, over to Alex Garland. So Alex Garland is the hot new young director around Hollywood, right? Yeah, I would say he is. Sort of. He's not young and he's not that new. I mean, he's, he he's comparatively not young. He's kind of good looking. It's funny watching interviews with him made me think like this is what I imagined in what uh, this is what I imagined Charlie Brooker the guy who did um, Black Mirror this is what I imagined he would look and sound like oh how so he's just Alex Garland is a lot more serious like there is some levity there but there's also like a pretension mm. and was, yeah Charlie Brooker is not that pretentious Charlie Brooker is not that pretentious Alex Garland is weirdly humble but he also there is a pretension about him from just that i got from watching interviews not that that's bad or anything i feel like he's he he's earned it he's talented he's very talented now he's an interesting guy because he's been on every side of movie adaptations he's written books that were then Mm. in turn adapted into films and he's adapted another person's novel from the page to the screen hold your horses claire we'll get there Mm, so excited Um, and he's also written screenplays that were then rewritten and changed by directors. Um, and he's been the writer slash director of his own films, Annihilation being the second movie that Garland wrote and directed. Um, so Garland was born in London and holds what I thought was the jokiest degree, art history. <laughs> art history is a very respectable degree. I know it's a respectable style. degree, but whenever I I'm think not an like, art history major, but I know good people who are. I know. There are a lot of good people there who are. But whenever I think of like... Who needs college? You pay all this money for an art history degree. What are you going to do with it? But then there's people like Alex Garland who maybe that's helped shape him into the person who's able to make these really incredible movies. Um, So Garland loves to backpack and hike and shares a deep love of Manila in the Philippines. I you said vanilla. (laughs) And vanilla ice cream. I don't know about that, but probably. Who doesn't? Um, Garland's first major foray into writing was his 1996 novel, The Beach which was loosely based on his experience and travel in the Philippines. Now, The Beach was well-received and became a cult hit amongst Gen Xers, and Garland was only 26 years old when it was published. Mm. He wrote and published a book when he was 26 that was successful and critically acclaimed. Um, Garland's follow-up novel, 1998's The Tesseract, did not receive the same amount of success (laughs) as his debut. However, both of those books would be adapted for film. Uh, The Beach, in 2000, starring... Leonardo DiCaprio in the year 2000. Wait, is that the one where everyone was like, Leo can act? Look, this is after Titanic and everyone used the beach as the reference to how Leonardo DiCaprio could act? It was probably that movie. I haven't seen it, but I know I've heard about it. Yeah, and it was in 2000 starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tilda Swinton and it was directed by Danny Boyle. Mm. Um, And The Tesseract in 2003 starring Jonathan Reese Myers. Um, And that was directed by... Oxide or Oxide Chun Pong. I couldn't figure out or I couldn't find a pronunciation of his first name, but he's one of the uh, the Pang brothers who did like Bangkok Dangerous mm. and, and those movies. Um, and that one, that movie wasn't as well received as movie. The Beach. And actually in an, in an interview, Garland said he mentions one of his adap- book adaptations he liked, but didn't love some of the changes that were made to it in the direction that the movie went and the other one he could only watch about three minutes of. Mm. He didn't say which was which, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> the Danny Boyle, the beach, was the one that he he enjoyed more. Um, because Garland would work with Danny Boyle two more times. And oh. so, so Danny Boyle directed the very successful zombie film 28 Days Later, mm-hmm. which Garland wrote. And it... I remember people saying, oh, he drew, he'd made 28 Days Later. And I kept on thinking, no, I know that's Danny Boyle. Yeah. 
Um, but he wrote it. Well, the funny thing about that, too, it's not like someone wrote a script and Garland got to tamper with it and got a writing credit. No, Garland wrote that mm-hmm. script for that movie. It's considered on one of the best zombie movies. I haven't seen it because I'm a Freddy cat. But... It's really good. It is. It's probably the best zombie movie out there, I think. I don't know. I mean, some people talk about George Romero, but I, I really like 28 Days Later. He also wrote the sci-fi film Sunshine, which I really enjoyed back in the day, also directed by Danny Boyle. Um, and that's that starred Cillian Murphy, and uh, Captain America was in it as well. I, mm, I, forget I haven't else. seen it. It's I think it's good. I haven't seen it in a while, but but I always liked it. So he's he has experience writing these sci-fi scripts, like originally. He it's not like he was handed a script and then doctored it or changed mm-hmm. it and got a writing. Credit. He also focuses, it seems, in sci-fi in science fiction. Even though his, I mean, at least his, I don't know about his book, The Tesseract, but his first book did not seem very sci-fi at all. The beach. Right. Um, and then he was put in charge of adapting the very popular novel Never Let Me Go for film mm-hmm. in 2010. Which is also sci-fi. Which is also sci-fi, yeah. And then he also adapted the comic book Judge Dredd for the film Dredd in 2012 with Carl Urban. Um, so like I said before, he's been on every side of adaptations. Now, Garland made his directorial debut with the indie hit Ex Machina, which I haven't seen, oh my, actually. You would love it. I know I would. And it was in 2014, when we around the time we were forming this podcast. 2014? We weren't forming it that long ago, were we? Were we? It was... I remember that one of the reasons Sexy Robots is in our name is because I think James had seen Ex Machina recently. Yeah, and he was like... Ha- and he was really into, into Sexy Robots. Yeah, I mean, the, it is the quintessential... <laughs> sexy robot it is yeah i i'm a huge fan of the movie um and that netted him a couple oscar nominations and it had great reviews and it starred oscar isaac uh and it was during the editing and alicia uh, and alicia vikander who, who is, is going to be laura croft. laura croft tomb raider yeah and who won an oscar yeah and Damo gleason who is uh and everything in everything these days <laughs> So it was during the editing of Ex Machina, before the film was even released, that Garland was given Jeff Vandermeer's book, Annihilation, which he loved. He says it's one of the most original stories he's ever read. Um, And he he praised its dreamlike atmosphere. So he decided he wanted to bring it to the screen. Now, Garland contacted Vandermeer about how to adapt the story. Uh, Basically, he says, looking for permission from Vandermeer to do a really loose version of of the actual book. And Vandermeer, Vandermeer said, go for it, make it your own thing. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to see other people's spin on this. Now, in adapting the novel, Garland went in a different direction than he had for previous adaptations. So in a Talks at Google interview on February 22nd, Garland says that his movie is an adaptation of the atmosphere of the book as opposed to his almost slavish adaptation of Never Let Me Go, which I've seen the movie and read the book, and that was kind of shot for shot. The book. Right. And his character adaptation of Judge Dredd, which he said it was a big sci-fi world. They had a small budget. So he just tried to make a smaller movie that was really true to the character. I also think with Never Let Me Go, it was such a huge hit that yeah. you kind of had to be cut for cut. Yeah, that you had to like really stick to the book. That's mm-hmm. true. Um, now, Garland says he wrote the screenplay from memory alone, never referring back to the original material. And he did so before the other two books in the series were released. Um, and that's so he, he he didn't want to refer back to the book and double check things because he wanted to capture that dreamlike quality that he said he felt while reading it. So he was like, all right, if, if it's if I felt like it was a dream when I was reading it, I want to go from memory and to help make my script feel more like a dream or feel more. You know, loosey goosey. Cerebral. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and to try and capture the odd feel of Area X, the setting of the book and the movie, Garland filmed in southern England, but this is really weird, they brought in plants and trees and dressed it up to look like North Florida. So it's filmed in England, but it's with all this kind of Florida vegetation plopped on top of it, along with a lot of colorful, you know, set fungi pieces. and set pieces. Yeah, yeah, as you know, Claire. And I want to move on to some of the controversy surrounding this movie. So this movie was accused of whitewashing, which is, you know, where a character in, say, a book or a story is originally Asian or a person of color. Um, in this case, it was, it was, it was half, half Asian. Asian. And then a, a white person is cast to star them in the movie version. So it has to do with Natalie Portman's character. Um, Who's the lead? She's the lead. And in the original series, uh, she's described as being half Asian. Also, Jennifer Jason Lee's character is described as being half Native American. Now, Garland does have a defense of this, and it's it might check out. It might check out. Um, Garland's defense is that he wrote the script and started production and casting of the movie before the later books came out and that he didn't know. Because like I said before, the first book has no, or I didn't say this before, but the first book, there's there's very little description of any character. Right, because I had read the first book when I read about the controversy, and I remember being confused because I couldn't remember the race ever being mentioned, the main character's race. The no character's race is mentioned in the first book. They don't even have names. Mm -hmm. It's not until the second book that names and ethnicities are revealed for some of these characters. Um, now, Garland released a statement concerning the allegations. He says... Quote, this is an awkward problem for me because I think whitewashing is a serious and real issue and I fully support the groups drawing attention to it. But the characters in the novel I read and adapted were not given names or ethnicities. I cast the film reacting only to, only to the actors I met in the casting process or actors I had worked with before. There was no studio pressure to cast white. The casting choices were entirely mine. As a middle-aged white man, I can believe I might at times be guilty of unconscious racism in the way that potentially we all are. But there was nothing cynical or conspiratorial about the way I cast this movie. Now, some people are saying that there's no way he hadn't read the other books when he was writing this movie because some of what happens in the first Annihilation book and in the movie are things that happen in later books. Well, that's what I thought after I started reading the second book. But I, I also saw interviews with him when he was saying he was surprised at how closely... Mm -hmm. his movie lined up with what some of the later books did. And he said he didn't read the later books purposefully because he didn't want them to affect his script. And he didn't want to read the later books and then go back and change things. So I don't know. We'll get. I, I want to get a little bit more into it in uh, the opinion section. Um, but as far as... Do you, no, go ahead. As far as box office goes, it has made $22 million domestically so far, and it had a budget of $40 million. It's really underperforming, actually. Oh, no. It's not doing very well at all. And Paramount did a really curious thing with this film. Um, instead of having a European release, they sold the European distribution rights to Netflix. So this movie is not appearing in films outside of U.S., Canada, or China. Every other market, and I, guys, I mentioned European, but all the other markets, the distribution rights were sold to Netflix. Wow. Did they say why? They were afraid that it was going to be too smart for audiences, and Ooh. and they had, they had they had done test screenings of this movie last year, back in May, I think it was, and test screening because this movie's been finished for a while. the The test screenings did not go well, and people were confused, so they got nervous. They hedged their bets, 
And in a European market that maybe was more would have been more receptive to this movie, they sold the rights to right. Netflix. Right. Well, and he's British, so he can't even have his movie in theaters in his own country. He mentions that being he's very upset about that, that mm-hmm. he made this movie for theaters and he's sad it can't even be seen in a theater in his native England. I'd be sad too. Yeah. So I don't know. Paramount, Paramount, I, I looked up a lot of articles on this. So I don't want to go into it because I feel like I've been talking for a while now, but Paramount's been doing some funny things and they're kind of a mess right now as, as far as a movie company. They don't really have a franchise, do they? Wait, is Fast and Furious Paramount? No, no, that's Universal. That's Universal. They have Transformers movies okay. and Mission Impossible. Those are their two big tent poles. Mm. So they also were the ones who released Arrival, though. They're the ones who did Arrival. So they did have success with a cerebral kind of right. thought-provoking science fiction movie. How critically? Do you know how it's Very doing? well critically. The movie is uh, highly reviewed. It has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a 79 Metacritic score. Um, so I think it's time to jump into our opinions. And Claire, what did you think of the movie? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I guess I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I was going to because I loved Ex Machina so much. And you haven't seen it. Ex Machina, you say this is a horror movie? Ex Machina is a horror movie. Really? I think. I was more terrified in Ex Machina than I ever was in this movie. And I didn't necessarily know what was going to happen in this movie because it is so different from the book. Yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and I really like that this kind of science fiction is being made, like I talked about in my segment. I love this kind of cerebral, intelligent, not necessarily shoot 'em up sci-fi. Yeah, and it's it's not even that it's not shoot 'em up too. I feel like it's just it's not spoon feed you the plot. There's a lot you have to infer. Well, from there's no nukes too. going off. Yeah. You know, there's no oh, army yeah, no, being sent definitely. in to deal with the problem. And you have to kind of think while you're watching it and look for things. Mm-hmm. I agree. I really liked this this movie. I loved the book. I couldn't put the book down. I thought it was one of the best things I've read recently. Now, what do you think about the whitewashing controversy? Because you've read a bit of book two. I haven't read the second book yet. I I don't know. Um, I, I guess Jeff Vandermeer wasn't involved in the casting process at all because I would almost think it would be his duty to step in and say, hey, the character is this. But it, I know that there's a thing where you kind of hand over the script and you're done. Yeah. You know, you get pay- he gets paid. He doesn't go from there. I-, I have no idea what to think of it. Yeah. They did talk. Like, they discussed adapting this movie before the other two books were written. Mm-hmm. I-, I wonder if Jeff Vandermeer mentioned that to him, that the lead character is supposed to be half Asian, or— I mean, I like to believe that he didn't know. Yeah. I'd like to believe that, too, because I liked the movie so much. I also think he had a thoughtful response to people's reactions, much more thoughtful than what a lot of people say. Yeah. You know, like, oh, the studio made me do it. Paramount is also the studio that did last year's amazing, amazing um, Ghost in the Shell, (laughs) (laughs) which had a serious whitewashing problem as well. Yeah, but that's a really serious whitewashing problem. Yeah, what do you think about it? I don't know. Like you said, I want to believe that he didn't know because I liked the movie. I also can see a scenario where he wrote the script, got Natalie Portman on board to sell it to the studio, then found out that the main character was half Asian, but too many balls were rolling and he felt like he couldn't, like the studio maybe was only going to do it with a star like Natalie Portman or something. Right, and he was also pitching a movie where the male character is really just a side thing. Yeah, he's hardly—Oscar Isaac is hardly in it. Yeah, 
you know, he's a part of the plot, but yeah. it's his absence is more a part of the plot than his presence actually yeah, is. Yeah, it's mostly Portman, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa, uh, Tessa Thompson. Thompson, and Jennifer Jason Lee. And uh, Tuva Novotny. I thought I'd never heard of her before, but I thought she was really good. She was really good. I mean, the performances are all really good. He cast really strong actors. I love that it's an all female led sci fi movie. Yeah. Because I'm trying to think of the like the other smart sci fi movies that I've seen recently and you think of Arrival, yes, Amy Adams is the lead, but that's it. Yeah, it's kinda just Amy. Yeah. I mean, can you think of anything else that's more female led? Even in The Expanse, I love The Expanse. Yeah, it's mostly but dudes. It's mostly dudes. It's dudes and Naomi. <laughs> Who is the best character? Who's the the best? The best, easily the best character. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of other. You know, even Ghost in a Shell. It's a female lead, but everyone else around her is male. In a nude bodysuit, surrounded by men. <laughs> it's very progressive. <laughs> it's... <laughs> no, I, well, I wanted to ask you about this also. So. This movie is a very loose adaptation of the book. Like, I can see where he's coming from trying to capture that dream sense, but it's very, very different from the book is. And I wonder at what point is it even worth saying that this was an adaptation I of mean, Annihilation? I mean, it was an adaptation. Yeah? Yeah, I, I think you sent me an email saying, does he have to call it Annihilation? Yeah. No, but I, he made it work. For his script, so why not use the name if he's making it work? Because yeah. there's a lot of adaptations where it's based on. Yeah, no, you know, that's true. And it's that's not true. the same title. I actually, I read the book and then I saw the movie, which in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, scenarios is a disaster for me. Yeah, it's a detriment to the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't mind it here. I think because it was so different and it was such a well thought out plot and movie. It, it was an interest. I thought it was an interesting take. On this idea. Yeah. Like I said, I really love the movie. I think it's it climaxes. Its climax is extremely intense, and I've, I'm i still thinking about it. It's a movie that, like, has stuck with me mm, since I, I saw it days ago. I definitely had nightmares. More from the book, though. I think because I read the book after the movie. After I saw the movie, I was like, I need to read the book. So I st- I. Sp- Speed read the book. And Kyle's had a great week. It's been rough. I've had trouble sleeping, but it's been great. Oh, like, I meant like you just didn't have to work this week. Oh, yeah, no. It's snowstorm, We've had a snowstorm. snowstorm in New York, so <laughs> it was off a lot. Um, but, but yeah, the one thing that the book does, and, and Alex Garland does this in his movie, he says, is that he tried to make sure that the weirdness was kind of tapered. He says, like, start the movie in a suburban setting. And then just have it progressively get a little weirder because the the strange thing about strangeness is you get acclimated to it. So if the mm-hmm. movie starts really strange and trippy, when it becomes stranger and trippier later, it's harder to notice. But this starts normal and just gets weirder and weirder in a good way, in a really good way well, uh, for me. Well, it depends me. on your perspective. That's true. Your perspective. If you're in the movie, it might not be as good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely not. I would not want to be any of those people in that movie. <laughs> Um, I want the movie to do really well because I want more of these movies to be made. It kind of makes me sad that people aren't seeing it. I think I also yeah, run with like a, a very film artsy crowd, even on my Twitter. Yeah. So yeah. it seems like everyone's seeing Annihilation, but yeah. I guess people aren't. Which does really bum me out too because right. it, it is phenomenal. So it's it's not my favorite. Alex Garland movie, yeah. but I want him to keep making movies. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. You want him to have another success so he can go on and do his next project, whatever right. he wants to do. 
I the the it's supposed to release on Netflix in Europe on March 12th, and I read a, a, a GQ England article about it. Someone had gotten to see it early, and that was just glowing with praise. So I'm hoping that it does really really well internationally right, but will it on streaming. Uh, I guess if it does very well, if it on does streaming. very well streaming, yeah. I mean that. It, I feel like any publicity for this movie helps it. At this point, though, it's still getting its butt kicked by Black Panther still. Mm. And that's another and we, thing. We do like Black Panther yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. But that is another thing where, like, this movie was made or was finished last summer, but Paramount was betting against it so hard they released it, like, the week after Black Panther or, a couple, or around the same time right, as Black but Panther. Paramount couldn't have known how big Black Panther was going to be. But you could hazard a guess, but yeah, that, that was a gamble in itself. True. That's true. I just think it is funny that they waited until a large Disney Marvel release to release right. this movie, which mm-hmm. and Disney Marvel but releases normally Disney dominate. Not releasing a Marvel movie. That's a very good. That's a very good point, Claire. You're right about that. <laughs> so Annihilation, we recommend it. I definitely recommend it. If uh, even I want to take my girlfriend, but she's kind of a fraidy cat, so. But I do recommend it. I really, really enjoyed the movie. Yeah, I recommend it to anyone who wants to see um, science fiction that's not necessarily shoot 'em up. Yeah. I want to say a thinking man sci-fi, but that sounds super pretentious. Smart sci-fi. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Claire White. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRAPodcast. I can be found on Twitter at Klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire, that's C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about Aliens and Annihilation on our Facebook page where we're going to post some of the articles and interviews we used for our show. Our producer, who isn't even here producing right now, so screw you, James, <laughs> is James Foey. <laughs> Our art was done by Patty Highland, and even though she's never with us in the studio physically, she's always with us spiritually. And our wonderful, wonderful theme music was done by the very generous, forgiving, all-loving, all-seeing, all-knowing Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>